Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kishanu B'Mitzvotah V'Tzivanu, La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Ve'harevna Adonai Eloheinu Et'Divrei Toratecha B'Finu Ufi Amka B'Tisrael, Ve'nie Anaknu V'Zetzeinu V'Zetzei Amka B'Tisrael, Kulanu Yodea Shemeka Ve'lomde Toratecha Lishma. Baruch Atah Adonai Hamlame Torah Le'Amo Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please send Mashiach now. Let the resurrection begin. Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Well, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Today will be about overturning evil decrees. How fitting, since we're currently in a time of judgment, because for the first 33 days, that's right, the first 33 days of the Omer, it's considered to be a time of t- immense tikkun that we need to do. And before I continue on, I want to just bring up the fact that you may or may not have noticed, but the audio quality has changed for the podcast. And that is special shouts out to a gentleman who is one of our new Avengers. His name is Adam Hamaor the Shomer version of Marvel's Adam Warlock character. Uh, but he is commonly known as Brett Johnson. So I just want to give a shout out to him and tell him a big toda raba, Brett Johnston, that is, make sure the, the T is in there. But uh, just to let him know and to let everybody else know that uh, he hooked me up with some really cool gear. So... um. Hopefully it sounds good, and I'm uh, constantly working on adjusting everything. I did a few tweaks um, between my previous two podcasts and this one. So this is officially the third podcast. Hopefully the third time's a charm. And, um, so I want to go ahead and continue on. I want to bring up a compendium of sources that really teach us about evil decrees and the repentance aspect of them, uh, asking Hashem for mercy and to tear things up. You know, there is uh, one of the uh, letters that talks about tearing up the decree. I'm going to see if I can find it here. The uh, the written bill, the bill of debt, uh, I think is what it's called. Let me see here if I can find it. Um, hmm. I was thinking about this, and it was saying that he tore up the uh, the bill of debt for us. So that is in one of the letters somewhere. Is it like a Colossians or something? Hmm. Let's see. Haha. Thank you, Hashem. It is from the Agarit to the Colossians. It says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the stake. So, again, this is Agarit Colossi. So the letter to the Colossians, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. That is amazing because that's the tip of an iceberg that I'm barely going to scratch the surface on. 
So we're four minutes in now, and for the rest of this uh, hour that we have, and I may have to do a second segment, here we go. I'm going to start with the Chafetz Chaim. It says, by focusing on these words for a few seconds, you can, number one, tear up the evil decree. Number two, greatly increase Hashem's mercy. Number three, perform a truly great mitzvah. And the words are, Amen, Yeheh Shemei Rabbah Mevarak. Again, that's Amen, Yeheh Shemei Rabbah Mevarak. Which means, oh, Slika, it's, it's, it's actually a full statement. Amen, Yeheh Shemei Rabbah Mevarak, Leolam Ulmei Almaya. Again, Amen What's the English of that? I'm glad you asked. May his great name be blessed forever and for all eternity. For those of you who've heard of a prayer called the Mourner's Kaddish, that is the response we say at like the very second or third line of the Bracha, where we're blessing Hashem who gives life and who takes away life and will restore, which is important to remember, he will restore the life that was taken. This is why we don't mourn as other people mourn. So what a beautiful way to enter into this episode, talking about the actuality of the evil decree against us being taken away the actuality of that is Mashiach's body on the stake. If you could take the death, the curses, and the darkness that we bring on ourselves from rebelling against Hashem, rebelling against the words of Torah, scorning Hashem's Torah, uh, acting up, if you will, to get a little ethnic with it, just acting out, acting up, in Hashem's presence, which is what we did when we had the temple, which is what we do now in our temple, because did you know our bodies are temples? Hopefully we've gone over that parsha to Ruma and so on and so forth. But that's important because there's a decree that we've brought on ourselves. And if we don't realize the desperation and what we need to do to tear that up, then oy vey to us. So these words are very powerful, and the sacrifice of Messiah, his akedah, is just testimony and proof of that. So literally, as we focus on these words, we can focus on Messiah's body on the stake, which is kind of... I know it seems very jarring because, you know, the Catholics have the Messiah's body hanging on a stake and hovering over the, the congregation as they meet. But the thing is, his body did not stay there, which is super important to understand why do we bless his great name forever and for all eternity? Because had the story ended there, these words would not be useful. Because you realize that the contamination that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil brought into these temples, our bodies, 
that contamination, the golden calf, that contamination, the the idolatry, the murder, the sexual immorality, which is all summed up in Lashon Hara, evil speech. All of these things are the same grave sin that keeps us under the counsel of the serpent, that keeps us from having eternal life. And what the only way to get rid of that is to take that contaminated corpse, put it in the dirt, and cause it to be dispersed back into the earth. I.e. the proverbial, from dust you were formed, and to dust you shall return. There's a whole beautiful drop, and it's from Shavile Pinchas, who I normally call Shodnuf Pinchas, and he brings this down from Parsha Shemini a few years ago. I'm actually going to see if I can find it. I'm just going to take some time, because I want to make sure that everything is thoroughly sourced out, so... Bezrat Tashem, everyone is super comfortable, and uh, you have a little bit of time. Because these types of concepts and these things are very, very important. Uh, Shonaf Pinkus from Parsha Shemini 5779. So this was literally just last year, just one year ago (laughs) from this podcast. So on page two, going into page three is where this comes from. So he's sourcing out Midrash Shoker Tov. First of all, just a little uh, flash grenade that I want to throw at everybody. There were 613 trees planted in Ghani Den, corresponding to the 613 mitzvot, which act like water nourishing the trees in Ghani Den. The Etz Chaim in the middle of the garden is the Holy Torah, the source of all the mitzvot. So we could have ate from any of the 613 trees that were nourished by the one tree that was in the middle of the garden that we weren't supposed to eat from yet. And that could have been totally fine. And we would have never been in this predicament of now we have to die in order for resurrection and life to take a hold. So now thinking about Yeshua being the resurrection and the life, that's just absolutely mind-boggling. But anyway, that's from the Al-Sheik that brings that down. But over here to Midrash Shoker Tov Tehillim 3, it says that the Parashot of the Torah were not given in chronological order. For had they been given in order, anyone would read them, anyone who would read them would immediately be capable of creating a world resurrecting the dead and performing supernatural feats. Therefore, the order of the Torah was withheld and is only known by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as it states, Yeshayahu 44.7, Isaiah 44.7, anyone or whoever will declare that he is like me, let him proclaim it and set forth. So, Yeshua totally raised the dead and uh, created worlds because, you know, through him, uh, there's new life given and things like that. And then uh, performing supernatural feats was just a norm for him. You know, man with withered hand, uh, telling the wind and the waves to calm down. Just don't freak everybody out for a second. You know, walking on water. um, You know, just to name a few things. And... The fact of him actually going in the 14th of Nisan 
from that evening that brings us into the 14th of Nisan to the sunset the following day of the 14th of Nisan. Because, you know, days start at night in Hebrew, on the Hebrew calendar. But from that time frame, there was no sleeping for him. So the, the meal that he had was a Seder meal. That was his last meal. And then he went out into the garden. It was midnight. And all throughout the night... He's praying and his sweat is turning into drops of blood. He gets handed over, goes through all these judgments throughout the middle of the morning, and then is handed back and forth between different Roman governors. And then he gets whipped with a cat of nine tails. And, um, you know, the 40 minus one hits, you know, with the lashing. And then brought back before the people He's punched and spit on and covered with uh, different garments and then stripped and then made to carry this huge beam uh, for a little bit of a walk, just like we did with our uh, Pesach lamb when we chose it on Shabbat Hagadol and we would take it to our homes and tie it to a bedpost. And so Mashiach, just like we paraded the lamb, so was Mashiach paraded around the town and people were you know, cursing him and mocking him. And he was just bearing his burden, which was our burden. That's what we should have been doing. So he carries all that. He comes up to the crucifixion stake and he's hanging there from the time the morning lamb to the afternoon lamb is offered literally from the olive to the top of all the lambs, you know, he's hanging on the stake. And so throughout the day, as the Pesach lambs are being brought, there's Messiah hanging outside the temple uh, on a stake in between two other criminals. And if you think about the arduousness uh, that it takes and what is exerted upon the physical body just from staying up all night, nonetheless, or even more so, think about adding a fast to that during the day. Because if you're on trial and you're getting beat and whipped, there's no time to eat no time to sit down and really have a meal and uh you know you definitely ain't gonna be snacking while you're on the steak so you know there's that and not to mention all of the physical abuse that he has undergone and he's hanging on until everything is complete so that just before sundown there's just enough time to take his body down to wrap it up in white linen just like we do the afikoman and put him in the earth, in the tomb. So I bring all that up to say that first of all, Messiah's testimony and proof of fulfilling what's here in the Midrash Shoker Tov. And when he told us about what's the greatest commandment and how all of that flowed out, like he took different parts of the Torah and put them together. And when he was asking people, what does the Torah say? And the people would line out the different mitzvot. He's like, you're correct. You know, mind you, many times when he was questioned about the laws of the Torah and the different uh, mitzvot and which ones are the greatest, uh, that there were sofarim, the, the, the scribes, who were the people who were in charge of counting the number of letters on the Torah scroll and which passages link up to what passages, you know, and knowing that the Torah portions are out of order, so yet when you can... Uh, interweave them together seamlessly in their current form, even though they're out of order. Obviously, Mashiach is showing proof of this. 
So anyway, but not to get off into that, even though we have already, so it's kind of too late. But when you look at what we're talking about right now, we're talking about the likeness of mankind, like the first Adam, so is the second Adam. All mankind, all the worlds, all of creation and everything is found in Adam. We just read that in the Midrash Rabbah. Again, I podcasted about this yesterday, but just know Midrash Rabbah, Tazria, literally right out the gate, it goes into that. So here's Mashiach being the the form that Adam, Harishon, the first Adam was fashioned after. Here he is now descending down from higher worlds into this lower world. He is a picture of Zimzum, if you will, the divine contraction of Hashem's essence into a small form. Just like Hashem would take his whole presence, his uh, his Shekinah, if you will, and collapse it down so that it can fit between the wings of the cherubim on top of the ark cover. And that's where Hashem's presence is in that cloud right there. And Hashem obviously is way more and way bigger than that. But he collapses down into this small space and he's just like, I'm going to contract my essence to here. So if Hashem can do that in a cloud and do that in an ark, why can't he do that in the form of a human body, which is ultimately what needs to be redeemed in order for the rest of creation to be redeemed, which is the whole thing about redemption. So this is the lead in to why we have to be buried and why Colossians 2.14 matches up with uh, tearing up the evil decree and what we're getting into here about repentance and all of that. So it says, we can begin to comprehend the nature of the Etz Chaim in the midst of the garden. It is the Holy Torah, arranged by HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the proper sequence. Anyone who would read from it would be instantaneously would be able to instantaneously to create worlds and resurrect the dead. Therefore, Adam HaRishon, had he not sinned, he would have been permitted to eat from the Etz HaChaim. Because if you think about it, he would have been able to impart life and resurrection into him, which is the opposite of death and not eternal life. So he would have been able to sustain himself eternally from this tree and going on to say that uh, it says he would have perceived the Torah in its proper order and would have lived eternally. So we're talking about immortality here. So the fountain of youth literally is the Torah in its proper order, which is the body of Mashiach, Mashiach ben Yosef to Mashiach ben David, the suffering and the the current arrangement of the Torah as we know it, the current fashion of life as we know it, all of that being taken, offered up, buried, and then raised up. And now, as we partake of him and learn of him, we're getting everything back in order so that when he returns, that'll be the final step in that process so that we can go ahead and step out of our current phase of death and not eternal life into life and life everlasting. So, <clears throat> going on, it says that the study of Torah empowers a person to resurrect the dead. Okay, that's ridiculous. So, so 
Okay, so that that's a true statement. <laughs> Study of Torah has the the potential for a person to resurrect the dead. So the statement as you read it verbatim in the source here says, for if the study of Torah empowers a person to resurrect the dead, it can surely eliminate the eventuality of death. For this reason, the Torah in its proper order is called the tree of life, which is Etz Chaim. For one who reads from it attains eternal life. So if we could study the Torah in its proper order, we could literally cast out death. So now again, when Mashiach's body was put on the stake, buried and resurrected, that was tantamount to putting the Torah back in order so that as we come to him, place ourselves in this new Torah that Hashem has raised up, which means we're not per se saying, okay, go to Yeshua, forget about the Torah as it is and all that. We're saying that the Torah, as it's going to be in time to come, that we're going to study and learn from, the access point <clears throat> is entering in through the death, burial, and resurrection of Mashiach. That's the only way the evil decree is torn up. This is why those who have rejected Torah, i.e. rejected the Messiah, they'll be resurrected to eternal shame and judgment. But those of us who have accepted the Messiah will be resurrected to life and life evermore. So, Here's the big main statement. Again, I'm reading from Shavile Pincus, Parsha Shemini 5779. He says, Therefore, after Adam Harishon sinned, and death was imposed upon him, and all of the creatures within him. Selah. Okay. Anyway, Hakadosh Baruchu prevented him from partaking of the Etz Chaim. For he did not wish to reveal to him or subsequently to Yisrael the proper sequence of the Torah. As it is arranged in the heavens, it is crucial that they not be able to resurrect the dead or live forever because in this world, known as the Olam Hazeh, the complete tikkun, which is repair, demands that a person perish and return to the earth. This process cleanses him of the contamination of the nakash, which is the serpent. Nevertheless, at the time of the future Geula, when the sin of Adam HaRishon will be rectified and the decree of death will be repealed, HaKadosh Baruku will resurrect the dead by means of the Torah arranged in its proper order. That is the true Etzchayim. Anyone who partakes of it lives forever. This message conveyed by HaKadosh Baruku's statement, a new Torah will emerge from me. He will specifically reveal to Israel the Torah as it appears to him in its proper order. Thus, anyone who eats from it will enjoy eternal life as it is written, Bereshit 3.22, and he will eat and live forever. Did not the Messiah say you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about I'm the Torah in its proper order. Now I'm going to have to die, I'm going to have to bury, be buried and, and be resurrected because all of that contamination that is upon you, I will suffer that, I will summon that upon myself and suffer it 
And therefore, as you suffer with me and as you are buried with me and as you are resurrected with me, that's that's how you partake in all of this. So it's this whole concept scientifically known as entanglement. And so we have to be entangled with Hashem through the Torah. And so when we're talking about tearing up the evil decree, when we're talking about the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, the whole picture, not just half of it, not just, oh, he died for my sins and I can just praise the Lord. Not any of that, but I'm talking about the whole thing, which is, by the way, signified in the mikvah, which we're going to get into uh, as further notes go on. The mikvah is the most significant step in the circumcision uh, through our speech and our heart transformation uh, is super important. And what we do actually with our physical flesh when we circumcise it, that's all important. So the whole thing about becoming a new creation, converting to becoming a Jew, you're now entering into, for lack of a better terms, a 60th of the resurrection. So we're awaiting that time. We're awaiting the arrival of Messiah. May he come now. And... You know, until then, you know, we're stepping and moving towards that. The more we engross ourselves in Torah, the more we engross ourselves in prayer, the more we engross ourselves in the actuality and the results of the prayer and Torah study that we do. It should lead to physical action. So we're revealing godliness in the world. We're focusing on Amen Yehoshame Rabbah Mevarak Leolam Olame Almaya. May his great name be blessed forever and for all eternity. So Chafetz Chaim is bringing this down, and he says the primary accomplishment of this praise is that through it his great name will be exalted and sanctified in all the worlds. That is from Yesod Veshoresh Ha'avoda. It literally means the foundation and root of prayer or service. And it says one should have, one should also have in mind that Hashem's name should be whole and blessed forever and ever, which will occur when Amalek will be destroyed. That's from Tur Orach Chaim 56. And the important thing, knowing about Amalek, this is uh, our fruitless labor, and this is any kind of doubt that we uh, have within ourselves or that is spoken about whether or not we should follow Hashem, listen to Him, be obedient to Him, uh, be Jewish, and live out Torah, and pray for the redemption, and bring forth the redemption within ourselves. That's all aspects of Amalek. Which, remember, Amalek is the grandson of Asav, who is the father of Rome, like the father of this exile, a.k.a. Christianity. So, the whole aspect of what's taught by Rome, what's taught by Christianity, is everything that Amalek stands for. Who is Amalek? Talking about Haman. We're talking about... Uh, the king of the Amalekites. We're talking about the serpent's original in- agenda of, hey, I need you to die. I need you to lose your great and glorious stature, your splendor and glory and salvation with Hashem and come come be with me, which is do whatever you want to do, live however you want to live and you know make the most of what you have now because there is no eternality. There is no life after this. 
that's all Amalek. That's all Nakash, which is serpent. And that's why our bodies literally have to be put back in the earth so that can be dispersed and given back to them because Hashem is going to bring us forth anew. And, you know, again, the the dust of the earth is the food of the serpent. So, you know, just remembering, considering ourselves as dust and ashes before Hashem, that's us losing ourselves, dying to ourselves, killing our egos, and giving back the serpent what he put into us. So it's very, very important that we we get get it out of us. And through speech, we can we can do that. So back of the card says three powerful reasons to invest Kavana into saying Amen Kavana is your intent. There's a, a section of our Pesach Seder that we just completed about a week or so ago, and we said next year in Yerushalayim. And that was said on the tail end of may all of the elements that we partook of of the Seder, everything that we've hoped for and prayed for throughout this whole entire night, may it be acceptable, worthy, and favorable before you, Adonai, our God. And when you are doing Kavana, your intention, that actually precedes anything that you say, think, or do. So therefore, by the time you actually get into the actuality of what your intentions are, it's already been set. It's already been established. So it's kind of like the thing where, you know, in, on our cars, some cars today, they have the sensors where you walk up to the car and it's like before you even touch the car or reach out to the door, it's going to unlock. And so by the time you actually reach out and, and open the door or pull your keys out and, and do whatever you need to do with them, the car is already ready for you. That's our intention. So if with our intent, we're wanting Hashem to tear up the evil decree, we're wanting Hashem to accept us and be favorable to us and overturn our judgments. It starts with our intent. Why do we want him to overturn our judgments? Why do we want him to tear up the evil decree? Do we want to just get out of free or get out of jail for free card? Do we want to please move Gehenna away for now card or let me go ahead and uh, ask you for this so I can go ahead and do this thing over here? You know, like why? What's your intent? You know, and so making sure that's appropriate and that's correct, because if your intent is off, then you're throwing off everything else. So it goes on to say, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, whoever responds, Amen, Yehoshua, Rabbah, and the rest of the phrase, it says, with all his might. So if you say this with all your might, Amen, Yehoshua, Rabbah, Mebarak, Le'alam, Ulamei, Almaya. If you say that with all your might, it says, the evil decrees against him will be torn up. That is from Shabbat, 119b. And then it goes on to say, at the time when all Israel calls out in a loud voice, Amen, the Holy One, blessed be He, becomes filled with compassion, which is 
Rachamim, mercy. Related to the word Rachem, which means womb. So you're going to fill up the Shekinah of Hashem with newness of life. And it says, and his mercy, and he has mercy up on all. That's from the Zohar Parsha Noach. One of the names of the Mashiach is Menachem, which means comforter. So you give birth to one of the aspects of Mashiach through calling out these words with the proper intention, with the proper focus, with the proper desire. Goes on to say the Mishnah Barua 56.6 answering this Amen Maya is an exceedingly great mitzvah. And remember, as we were reading about uh, Parsha Metzora, which is the other part of Parsha Tazria when it's read as a double portion, that Hashem in His great mercy has caused the tongue to be the smallest and most powerful and most quick, as said, it's the most swift, swiftest, it's the most swift of all of our organs. And it actually inflicts the greatest damage if used improperly. And it also brings about the greatest repair if used properly. Because that's the power of the tongue. And again, the, the letter of Yaakov, a, a.k.a. the letter of James, points this out about the power and the swiftness of the tongue. It can literally burn down an entire forest. And remember, men are like trees. I.e., if you have a congregation of men, however many there are, depending on what you do or don't do with your tongue, will be ultimate destruction or ultimate repair, ultimate building or ultimate tearing down. And if you read the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, we also learn about how we need to have wholesome speech. And as we're going through the counting of the Omer, we're learning about our speech and how it brings about renewal and it brings about purification to the defilement and impurities upon our soul. So that's the Chafetz Chaim, the Chafetz Chaim, Slika, uh, just to let you know where all those incredible sources came from on tearing up the evil decree. The main crux of where I want to quote from for all these sources about tearing up the evil decree and asking Hashem and beseeching him for mercy is actually going to come from the art scroll of Yahu, the art scroll commentary, the anthology uh, commentary of Jeremiah, the prophet. And I want to launch out into that by quoting uh, from the writings of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 16. And it says this, it says, When Yeshua came to the region of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his Talmudim, he asked his Talmudim this question. What did he ask him? Turning my screen so I can read better. It says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? There's this beautiful source called who, what, when, where, why, how, Mashiach. Like this whole thing about the, all these different questions you ask about Mashiach. And it's so cool because 
We're about to read in the gospel accounts that that's already a question, even in front of his face. <laughs> like, who do people say the Mashiach is? All right, let's let it fly. Well, they answered. Some say Yochanan the Immerser. Okay, so Yochanan, who obviously was not the Mashiach, he called himself the forerunner of Mashiach and the one who testifies about the one who's greater than him because the one who's after him was actually before him. So if you think about that for a second, that's kind of ridiculous. But Mashiach, one of his names is actually supposed to be Eliyahu. So there's that Eliyahu being the front runner of the Messiah. So that's that's a possibility. Yeshua HaMashiach, one of the things that people say as far as your identity, they say that you're Yochanan, the one who immerses people in the waters of Teshuva. It's like, okay, that's a pretty good take. Others say Eliyahu. It's like, oh, yeah, you're the one who was caught up in the chariot and, and somehow you're back, even though you were born from a womb. It's like, so you went up in fire and then you came down uh, by the Ruach HaKodesh uh, on a woman. And here you are. You grew up from a baby and now you're here. It's like, are you are you human? Like, did did you go up and like take on another body and like come back down? Or like, is Eliyahu still up there? Or like, you know, who's Memtet and how's all that working out? You know, so that's interesting when you put that into play. Connecting that back to Yochanan, who, who, by the way, at this point was already beheaded. So there's this whole thing of Yochanan has been resurrected because Mashiach Yeshua is going around doing all this Yochanan stuff. So anyway, Yochanan is John, by the way. And it says, and still, so even with just Yochanan and Eliyahu, others say Yermiyahu. The, the prophet who we're going to be getting into and talking about. Some say you're him, like the one who preached and warned all of Israel, turn from your ways, repent, turn to God, overturn the evil that has been set against you. It hasn't been sealed yet, so you still have a chance, but, you know, like that guy. Or... One of the other prophets, which we're going to read in the overview, but I'm going to say it now. It says all the prophets preached repentance. All the prophets preached repentance. So it says the emphasis of Yeshiyahu and the other prophets was on repentance. Repentance is going to probably be the key word to summarize this whole entire podcast. But anyway, it says, he said, but who do you say I am? He's like, all right, so thank you for throwing out all your sources. That's great. All right. But who do you guys say I am? Who do you say I am? Shimeon Kepha answered, you are the Mashiach Ben HaElohim. You're not just one of the Mashiachs. You're not just one of the Messiah Ben Yosef's of the generation. No, you are he. You are everything that the Torah points to. 
You are everything that the prophets prophesied. You are everything that the Mashiachs of every generation are conglomerated into. You are the summation of the parts, basically. You directly stem from Hashem. You're one with the Father and you emanate from the Father. Just like the very word and spirit and presence of God. Same thing applies to you. Even though you're in human form and I don't know how that's working out, but yeah. So you're you're literally salvation in flesh. Even though salvation is not found in a man and you look like a man and you are a man, but you're somehow beyond that. And it's like, well, if you remember about Adam, then Mazel Tov, because remember, Adam was Hashem's image in the lower worlds that spanned the entire universe and all of the heavens and the earth were found in him. So, yes, Mashiach, you are you are that like what what Adam was was a reflection of you are the actuality of that's what that statement is expressing and to the best of my ability through blue screening and really getting the implications of what I'm saying uh that's the best way I can put it and I am definitely not saying that's the only way to put it cuz whatever I say I mean there's always going to be infinite more amounts of information and insight to really dig into. So what's Yeshua's response to this? He says, blessed are you, Shimeon, ben Yonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in Shemaim. You know, the Torah is likened to the child of Hashem, right? Because, you know, Mishle, I believe it's chapter 7, talks about being the the Torah, which is wisdom, being the nursling and uh, child of Hashem, who Hashem took daily delight in. So it's the word is Uman, and it's actually connected to Rashid, which is the first fruit or firstborn, literally the firstborn, first fruit of all creation. So... There's that. But anyway, it says, and I also tell you that you are Kepha. So here's your official name change, Kepha. I tell you this is who you are. Just kind of like when Yaakov got his name changed, when he wrestled with the face of Hashem, and then later was the actuality of Hashem letting him know you are now Yisrael. You're not just Yaakov. So same thing with Kepha. is like, no, you are you are. Kepha. And so interesting that Kepha and Yaakov both have two names and both are referred to either or name back and forth. So a really neat little uh, connection, compare, contrast there. But it goes on to say, and up on this rock, which is a pun because the word Kepha literally means the hollow place of a rock. And it says, I will build my community. So upon this pierced place, which is the same place Moshe stood to receive the renewal of the covenant and the later chapters of Exodus, upon this spot, I will build my community. So my community, the people who will follow the Mashiach, who knows the Mashiach is the son of God, who is the Mashiach, 
The only way we know that he's a Mashiach is because Hashem reveals it to us. It's not anything flesh and blood can prove to us. So therefore, if we're going out trying to convince people Yeshua is the Messiah, we need to stop. Um, all we need to do is be rocks that cry out. That That's it. Because only Hashem can reveal that. So from this very, very place, from this place that is pierced, this place that is hollowed out, the only place we can actually experience the glory of God, that's where my community is built up. So when you think about that, Selah, and the next part says, and the gates of Sheol will not overpower it. So death and the place that holds those who are awaiting judgment, it will not be able to overpower this area, this life, this community. And it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of Shemaim. Whatever you forbid on earth will have been forbidden in Shemaim. And what you permit on earth will have been permitted in Shemaim. Then he ordered the Talmudim not to tell anyone that he was the Mashiach. There's a whole lot to get into about the keys of the kingdom. And it's all connected to Halakha and, um, you know, actually binding uh, things that are brought down by the community, kind of like the way the Sanhedrin is able to bring forth rulings and it actually be considered to be tantamount to Hashem commanding it, which is the whole reason why we say um, Hashem has commanded us to kindle the Sabbath lights because the people who gave us that commandment, they were empowered by Hashem to tell us that. So it's as if Hashem has commanded us. So there's a whole lot to get into with that, but that's not where I'm trying to go with this podcast. But just so you know, that's really what that's talking about. But the ending point where it says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. So Mashiach Yeshua knows, is like, okay, you guys are right. It's been revealed to you. You're standing in the pierced place. You're seeing the glory of God. And you know I'm the Messiah, but I, I need you to, to not tell anybody. Which is kind of weird. It's like, well, if you're the Mashiach, shouldn't we be like telling it? It's like, well, it's not time, first of all, but there's a whole lot of other details that we really have to discuss on that. So this is where I'll end with that as a launch out into what we're talking about. So I want to go to what's called Lag Baomer to just kind of keep tying bows here. That Lagba Omer is Hebrew for 33. So Lamet Gimel of Omer is basically what we're saying. Lamet Gimel is the way you say 33. As far as the way you write it out with the letters, Lamet is 30, Gimel is 3. So the 33rd day of the Omer. Some Jews call this holiday Lag La Omer, which means 33rd day of the Omer, as opposed to Lagba Omer which means the 33rd day in the Omer. It's a traditional method of counting by some Ashkenazi and Hasidic Jews. And Lag La Omer is the count used by Sephardis. So what's going on on Lag by Omer? Well, according to Menachem Posner Shlita, commentary here he says that this falls out on the 18th of the month of er which we're getting ready to go to um prep day and shabbat this week are both rosh chodesh 
So we got a double whammy of Rosh Hodesh to take us in the month of ER. So basically in the next couple of weeks, uh, the 18th of ER will be coming up. And it says, we remember the great and holy Tana, which is the Mishnaic sage, Rabbi Shimeon Bar Yochai. Now, the Tana is literally called a teacher. And it says, one of the sages whose opinions are quoted in the Mishnah and other works of that period, which is 273 BCE to 190 CE. And if if you're thinking what I'm thinking, you're like, wait a minute, that that spans the time that Yeshua was here on the earth. Now, we don't know exactly when Yeshua was here, but we do know it's before the turn of the century, as far as like before second century. So whether it was 1 CE or uh, 1 AD or, or I mean BC or something like that, however you want to look at it, within the first century, the Mashiach was here walking on the earth, which is a part of the, the era of the Tanaim and the, the, comp the composition of the Mishnah. So the Tanaim are known too as repeaters, which means that they're repeating things that have already been handed down, passed down by tradition uh, from Moshe on Mount Sinai, which is an extension of what was given to Adam handed down to Noah, handed down to Shem, handed down to Abraham, handed down to the children of Israel. So the Torah's always been here. It's just a matter of it being revealed and brought forth. That's been the thing. So anyway, just to throw that at, at us, it says, so Rabbi Shemayam Bar Yochai, who died on this day about 18 centuries ago, to this day, pious Jews make an annual pilgrimage to Kefar Maron, Meron, the land, in the land of Israel, to pray at the tomb of this great and holy scholar. Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, yes, that is the composer of the Zohar originally, so get you some of that. But it says that basically, uh, during the cruel persecution of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, when the Talmudic academies were shut down and the study of the Talmud was forbidden on penalty of death, Rabbi Akiva continued to teach the Talmud publicly and devoted his devoted pupil, Shimeon, stayed at his side until Rabbi Akiva was arrested. Even then, Shimeon uh, continued to visit his master in prison, receive instruction there, only death finally separated them, for Rabbi Akiva was condemned to die a martyr's death for Kiddush Hashem, which is the sanctification of God's name. So, there was this whole thing about the, the uptick in the Roman persecutions, and by the way, the Talmudim of Mashiach, they were all, minus Yochanan, uh, offered up as martyrs underneath the Roman rule as well. So, what was going on, this whole transition, Akiva to, uh, to Rabbi Shimeon Bar Yochai, and all of that, uh, says here, 
See, I'm trying to figure out where to jump in because basically the students um, of the Academy of Akiba were basically, um, they were Lashon Hurrah, they were having disputes with one another, and they ended up uh, being killed. And so these thousands of students uh, were martyred, brutally persecuted, uh, and it was under Rome. So let's see here. The entire Jewish religious life was in danger until the great Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba publicly ordained five famous scholars defying Hadrian's cruel decree. Rabbi Shimeon was one of these five scholars. Rabbi Meir was another. The Roman authorities were soon after these dauntless Jewish champions. So the ordained scholars escaped, but Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba was caught and put to death. So these first 33 days of the Omer are all about what was going on uh, during this time period, literally um, on the calendar, that the students were uh, massacred and they died. And uh, it culminated with the 18th of ER, which is the 33rd day of the Omer. I'm trying to see here if I can get you like the the best snapshot of all this. Um, let's see. He, Rabbi Shimeon Bar Yochai lived in the second century. And it says that the final day of a righteous person's earthly life, according to the Hasidic masters, they say marks the point at which all their deeds, teachings, and work achieve their culminating perfection and the zenith of their impact upon our lives. Selah, with when did Mashiach Yeshua die to take us into Pesach? So that's ridiculous. But anyway, so each lag by Omer, we celebrate Rabbi Shimeon, Bar Yochai's life and the revelation of the esoteric soul of Torah. Um, a plague raged among the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva, teacher of Rabbi Shimeon Bar Yochai, because they did not act respectfully towards one another. These weeks are therefore observed as a period of mourning with various joyous activities prescribed by law and custom so a period of mourning so we these activities that we be considered joyous they're minimized until the 18th of er and then it says then on that day which is where the death ceased lagba omer carries the theme of loving and respecting one's fellow jew i.e basis love there's big bonfires and it's like a this big renewal. So during this time, as we are counting the first 33 days of the Omer, there is a big uptick in tikkun and um, judgment that needs to be overturned based off of what we brought on ourselves. So I find it very interesting that I'm ending up podcasting about evil decrees during this time. And 
how what we're doing with our mouth and what we're learning from Parashat Tatriya Madzora, are we sowing leprosy or are we sowing life? Uh, I think that's very, very interesting that these are connecting. So without further ado, let's go ahead and let the sources fly from the Art Scroll Yermiyahu. So this is from the overview, literally page one of the preface. <laughs> says, of all the prophets charged with the difficult mission of pleading with the Jewish people to come to their senses and stop their plunge to destruction, none had a more difficult task than Yermiyahu. He was a young man when God chose him, and he spent four decades. Four decades. How long is that? That's right. 40 years. How long were we in the wilderness? 40 years. How long was King David uh, on the throne? 40 years. So there's that. But anyway, that is four decades. That's how long Yermiyahu spent. And it says he was gamely and vainly trying to prevail upon a nation convinced of its rectitude and invincibility of its temple. That's right. Up until the Shekinah departed from the temple, there was no way it could be destroyed. You could shoot rockets at it. You can nuke it. You can bomb it. And it wasn't going anywhere. Which again, the staff Moshe carried was made from the branch of the tree of life. It was the same weight as the volumetric weight of a mikvah, the same weight as the sapphire tablets. How many times did Moshe throw that staff and how many times did he strike with that staff and yet it didn't break? And then the tablets, they broke when Moshe threw them down. And Mashiach's body didn't die until the Shekinah departed from him. So, yes, am I comparing the staff of Moshe to the sapphire tablets, to the temple, to the body of Messiah? Yes. Saying that each of those items are invincible unless the Shekinah departs from them. And that's the only way they can be destroyed. Which, by the way, was the, the whole reason why we were never going to be destroyed because we had the Shekinah with us because we were clothed in the splendorous glory of Hashem. And until that was taken away, we weren't going to die. Which again, Shemot chapter 33, about us stripping ourselves of our ornaments so that Hashem can punish us was a thing because we sinned with the golden calf. So it's like, you know what? Take, take all that off because you guys, you're under judgment. And then Moshe had to intercede for us. And then we had to do sackcloth and ashes, repent and wait until the Mashiach would come so we can put those clothes back on, which is why we have to be clothed in Messiah. So there's all that. And you say, yet we die. Well, guess what? The clothing has not been fully engaged, which is the whole reason why we need Mashiach to return and initiate the redemption and the resurrection, because when that whole twinkling of an eye event occurs, that's when we'll finally have our clothes back on. Until then... We're, we're getting ourselves prepared, you know, like before you put clothes on, you take a shower, you know, and all that kind of stuff that that's what needs to happen now. Which is why we haven't received Mashiach ben David yet, which is why we have to cry out for Mashiach ben David. 
We need to ask Hashem to send him now so we can finish putting our clothes on. We're doing the washing. And by the way, when, when a person dies, there's a whole mikvah that you do to their body after they die. That's for another time. But that's the whole aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef, which is why the questions that he's asked or the, the uh, identities that he's said to be are so important. Yochanan, Eliyahu, Yermiyahu, you know, all of these aspects of purification, cleansing, mikvah, like getting us ready. Like that's the whole aspect of Mashiach ben Yosef. It starts from the inside. We got to get our spiritual self ready, physical sanctification and all of that. And then it can play out into, you know, the next phase of invincibility. But anyway, just so you know, the the nation was like, we can do whatever we want. The temple's never going to be destroyed. And because the temple's never going to be destroyed, we don't have to worry about uh, repenting. And we don't have to worry about ever being exiled. Because whatever you're talking about, Yermiyahu, you're smoking crack. We don't need to listen to you. You see the reality of life. So whatever. So anyway, that was Yermiyahu's job was to break through that. Now we talk about uh, gathering in divine sparks and, and busting up the Kleepot. I mean, that right there is a Kleepa for, for days. <laughs> like That's insane. But anyway, so it says to heed his message, he began his prophetic career in 3298. So we're in 5778 or 5780 right now. So 3298, how long ago was that? That's when he was prophesying. But anyway, during the reign of King Josiah, Yoshiahu is who his name is in Hebrew, one of the most righteous of all the kings of Judah, the one who restored the temple and its service after 57 disastrous years of idolatry and desecration. Ironically, Yoshiahu's success made Yermiahu's task even harder why? Because the people were sure that despite their sins, the temple would save them. Now, hold up. It just said that the temple would save us. So when we're asking about Hashem saving us and the angel of Hashem's presence is the one who saves us. Mashiach saves us. The Torah saves us. The spirit saves us and all that kind of stuff. Like, what? Despite our sins, the temple is going to save us. That was what we told Yermiyahu. We don't need to hear your prophet. We don't need to hear your prophecy about we're going to be killed and we're going to be cast out. We're going to go into exile and Babylon's going to destroy everything. First of all, Babylon can try all they want. The temple ain't going down. And we're sinners. We don't care. We're going to do what we want to do. That's totally fine. That's the message Yermiyahu's up against. At the same time, there's other prestigious prophets of his day saying, mm, ain't God good. God's good all the time. God loves us so much. We're still in the land. I know Assyria has been trying to come after us, but they got shut down, you know, and I know Babylon is trying to come in, but the same thing that happened to Assyria is going to happen to Babylon. So, you know, we're fine. We're good. Hashem loves us. Hashem says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. My mercies are brand new every morning. It's all good. Jeremiah, on the other hand, is like, uh, it's not all good. You guys better wake up. Judgment is coming. 
So it says that uh, Yermiyahu was opposed not only by the people's stubbornness, but by prestigious false prophets, like I just said. They're insisting that night was day and day was night. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia had conquered and sacked Jerusalem. It says that uh, could be there could there be a greater proof of God's wrath? But the charlatans, i.e., these false prophets, they prophesied that the they prophesied that the Babylonians would soon return the temple's looted treasures and go down to defeat. It's like I know they destroyed something that was invincible. I know they kind of messed up the city and everything, but it's okay. They're going to give the stuff back, and then you know they're going to be destroyed. I know it looks like we're losing, but we're not. We're winning. This is what winning looks like. It just looks like a little bit of losing. So that's the message. I'm going to skip down a little bit. It says the masses were always hungry for reassurance and outraged at Yermiyahu's refusal to say the popular thing. Many of the Jewish leaders demanded that he be put to death for his traitorous, his traitorous warnings. Wow. Talk about that. Again, we had our connection to Matthew 16 about our, the Mashiach is called Yochanan or Eliyahu or Yermiyahu, which again, that's kind of weird that out of all the people that the Messiah could have been mistaken for, really Yermiyahu was one of them? Well, here's why. It says, Yermiyahu bemoaned his fate. Why had he been chosen not only to foretell the horrors, but to witness them, even to be hated by the brethren he had been trying to save. Mashiach ben Yosef much? Because remember, Yosef came to his brothers, and his brothers were like, nope, you won't rule over us. And their very salvation literally depended on Yosef because there was a famine coming for the whole entire world. And Yosef was only was going to be the one with the power of Hashem to actually bring deliverance and salvation to the whole entire world. Literally become the savior of the world to bring everyone through the famine. So Yermiyahu came to his brothers to tell them, hey, you guys, there's a famine coming and there's a way to avoid it. And here's how you do it. And you know what they're into was get out of our face. Take your words and go throw yourself in a pit of miry clay. So how does one deal with that? Well, Vayikra 25.18, Leviticus 25.18 says, Therefore, you are to keep my statutes and to observe my ordinances and carry them out so that you may live securely in the land. Hiskuni brings down that if you do this, what? Keep my statutes, absorb my ordinances, and carry them out. If you do this, you will live securely in your land. Your security will be bound up with your loyalty to God's Torah. That's from the Hiskuni. Also adding to this, Zohar 1, 140b, says, He said to him, Rabbi, we have studied the verse, let there be light, Bereshit 1-2, which means, let there be 
secret because it says the word for or and the word for secret have the same gematria because light is the secret of redemption so redemption after darkness in the torah is found in bereshit one two so how do we know that we're going to be redeemed from this current exile only thing you need to do is read the first two verses of genesis anyway Going on to say, which means let there be redemption, the secret of redemption. The numerical value of or, which is light, is Raz, which is secret. Thus the verse, let there be light, hence at the time of the redemption will be a secret unknown all to men. So let me reread that. Hence at the time of redemption will be a secret unknown to all men. So the time of the redemption is a secret because let there be light which means let there be the secret of the redemption so why does no man know the time or the hour that's also genesis 1 2 says again he said that through teshuva which is repentance everyone will rise from the dead early rabbi yehoshua said unless you said so we would not have left an opening for those waiting daily for redemption. As it is written, a store of salvation, which is Isaiah 33, 6. What is this salvation? It alludes to those who seek salvation daily. So if you've never heard this before, um, now you're going to hear it, that the resurrection of the dead could start as many as 200 to 300 years before the return of the Messiah. So Bezrat Hashem, the Messiah, ain't going to take that long to get here. But should he do so, um, we're kind of in that point where the resurrection of the dead could start. Which is kind of interesting because the heightened uh, media before COVID-19 was zombie movie after zombie movie after zombie movie. So within the mind of man has already been this idea that reanimation from the dead is like, this is heightening the the opportunity and the potential of doing so is, is like coming up so anyway Bezrat Hashem we start seeing the resurrection soon again that's Zohar volume 1 140b also in volume 1 and 134b it says when he talking of Hashem wanted to create man the Torah said to him if man is created he will sin and you will punish him would not your handiwork be in vain? After all, he will not be able to endure the punishment. The Holy One, blessed be he, replied, I created Teshuvah before I created the world. Now, just stop for a second. Because one of the things it says in sources that Messiah or Hashem created the Messiah before creation. Hashem brought forth the Torah before creation. And now we're reading by Hashem created Teshuvah before creation. So what does creation before creation even look like? So semantically saying that Hashem is creating before he created. I mean, obviously that sounds really weird because we're talking about eternity can be created. So that's a blue screen moment. And I ain't even going to touch that with a 50 foot pole. But just to say. Before. Hashem said. Let there be light. And before creation was brought into being, 
there was already such thing known as repentance. So therefore, if you connect the dots on this, one who repents, one who makes teshuva, one who enters into repentance, you enter beyond space and time. You enter into eternality, if you will. So that's kind of crazy. So through your repentance, you can literally time travel back to the point before you sinned and rectify that. You can travel, you know, to the moment of your sin and rectify it. And you can travel back to even before you were born and rectify your life. Like that's literally the power of repentance. Hence why making teshuva on your teshuva is a thing. Because that's how powerful it is. And that's why it's important for us to continue to look for areas in our life that we need to repair and get after it and do it. And counting the omer is the prime way to do that. But anyway, when the Holy One, blessed be he, created the world and created Adam, he said to it, world? World, you and your nature are based solely upon the Torah. And for that reason, I created man in you to be occupied with the study of Torah. And if he does not study the Torah, I will return you to chaos. Why is there a chaos? Why is there destruction? Why is there havoc in the world? It's because we haven't been preoccupied with the study of Torah and the observance of it. Should all mankind engage in teshuva, returning to Torah, being occupied and diligent in it? The trees that are supposed to produce fruit, they're going to produce fruit. The, the destructive disasters and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff, those began to subside. But we all have to do it together, though. We can't just be like, oh, well, you know, I'll just let the Jews do it, you know, or I'll just let the Christians do it. I'll just let the Muslims do it. I'll just let the Buddhists do it or the Hinduists do it. No, everybody. Because it says Adam. I created Adam in you. Adam means mankind. Anyway. So, we're supposed to be occupied with the Torah. If he does not study the Torah, I will return you to chaos. Everything is for man. This is the meaning of the verse. I have made the earth and created man upon it. Yeshayahu 45.12 The Torah proclaims to men to be occupied with and endeavor in the study of the Torah. But no one lends an ear. That's Zohar, Volume 1, 134b. So there go, or ergo, because I always wanted to say that word and make it actually fit like it's supposed to. Um, since no one is lending an ear, that's why we have the current situations that we have. And what's been the primary message taught for, I don't know, about 2,000 years? Don't give ear to the Torah. Don't be occupied with it. Don't endeavor in it. We can't do it. No one can do it. Why even bother? Why even try? 
So I just want to point out that uh, the word Yeshua being the word for salvation, the gematria of that is 391, which is the same gematria as Esh Mayim, fire, water. Just like in Matthew 311, Matthew 311, it says that the one coming after me will immerse you in fire and the Ruach HaKodesh. So therefore, if you put the, the purpose and the goal of Mashiach Yeshua with the purpose and the goal of Yochanan, the immerser, you get salvation. It's the fire and the water together. Which, by the way, fire and water is Shemaim. Because it says there's water there. That's what Shemaim means. So anyway, uh, it says also, Yehoshua is the way to, if you rearrange the word for salvation, which is Yeshua, rearrange it, you get the word Yehoshua, which is the name of Yeshua. And it says, the ordinal gematria of Yehoshua or Yeshua is 58, which is actually the gematria of grace and also the word, the word, uh, or the name Noach, which comes from the word Menachem, which means comforter, the one who brings rest. So grace is our opportunity to enter into the fiery water of salvation repentance and Torah and to find our place of rest and to bring rest and solace to a world of chaos. Going down to Teshuvah, because I was looking at salvation and repentance because they work hand in hand. And when you look at Teshuvah, the gematria of Teshuvah is 713, which is the same as Sarah Yitzhak. So when you put Sarah with Yitzhak, that's Teshuvah. And in order for Sarah to have Yitzhak, she had to be restored to youth. She had to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, which we know is salvation. So, the result and the fruit of salvation is Teshuvah. You take your 391 and you take it up to 713. Also, Bayom Hashlishi, which is on the third day. That's also the gematria of Teshuva. What happened on the third day? The Akedah happened, where the sun was offered, and then was resurrected. And also Yeshua, who was offered, was resurrected on the third day. So the whole aspect of Teshuva is about that point of offering, which led to death, which led to resurrection and renewal. So this is our teshuva. So we can go through that whole process again to be uh, crucified with Messiah, buried with him and raised with him in life. That whole thing is connected to teshuva. The ordinal gematria of teshuva is 56, which is the same gematria as Yom and the name Nadav. The word Yom literally means day, and we live our life, we're supposed to anyway, live it daily. So like today, we hear his voice, worry about today, tomorrow has enough worries of its own. So that whole thing, so what are you doing today? That's Teshuva. So if you think about every day that you live, it's supposed to be meant for Teshuva, and Nadav 
His name means to offer freely. Yes, like Yochanan chapter 10, verse 18, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down. I nadav my life. Uh, and significantly or incidentally, or however you want to put it, as far as the transition, Nadav and Avihu, um, Avihu, my father is he. So my father is he who offered himself freely as Nadav and Avihu when you put that phrase together. And those were the very sons of Aharon whose very lives actually inaugurated and sanctified the temple and began the the service of the Mishkan. So because of their death, they brought the ultimate sanctity to the to the Mishkan and now we could begin the service. Now the twelve tribes could bring their installation and inauguration offerings. But our father who is our father the one who he our father he uh Avihu our father is he had to offer himself freely. And it's, it's interestingly enough, there were two sons who became one in this offering and in this death. And that brought the power of the Mishkan into full force in the earth. So two Mashiachs, but they're really one. Both are considered sons. And because they offered themselves, which was offering himself, which is the Messiah, now, the power of Hashem is established upon the earth, and we can now have an opportunity to return back to paradise. Which is what the Mishkan and what the temple represents is a return to paradise. It's a re return to the Garden of Eden on earth. So next time, when we get the temple, and may it be now that we get this, Hashem, please build it, bring it forth that the whole world will be returned back to a garden state. So, Baruch Hashem, may that be soon. May that be now. Back to the preface of Yermiyahu. On the next page, it says this. It says, Never in those centuries did a prophet warn that sin would lead to exile. There are considered to be three eras of prophecy. You have everybody before Hosea prophesied and no one ever talked about your sin is going to cause you to go into exile. Your sin is going to cause the destruction of the temple. Nobody ever prophesied that. So here comes Hosea and he warns that if they did not repent, they would be made subject to invasion of hostile neighbors. Uh, Israel was the first fruit of that because that was the northern kingdom and that's where Assyria came in. So going down, it says, with the emergence of Hosea, he was an older contemporary of Yeshiyahu. It says, a new theme entered the prophecies. Now remember, there's really not anything new. It's just, this is now going to be revealed. Because remember, Vayikra 25.18 says, you will not dwell securely in the land if you do not carry out the Torah. So it says, now the prophets in Hosea's day declared that unless the nation repented, i.e. made teshuva, there would be destruction and exile. That's always been the case. So there's, there's not really anything new. It's just like, well, now the prophets got to talk about it because now we're, we're, we're digging into it. 
So, going on with the source here, it says, So in the very first chapter of his book, Yeshayahu castigates the nation for sins and warns that it would not remain in its land unless it changed its ways. Fittingly, that chapter is the Haftarah of the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av. And it says, For Yeshayahu's words seem to be introducing the catastrophe that took place on the historic day of tears and tragedy. The emphasis of Yeshayahu and the other prophets, however, was on Teshuvah. They exhorted the nation to return to the Torah. They exhorted the nation that return to the Torah would save them. Return to the Torah equals salvation, basically, is what this is saying, which is Teshuva. It says, as the years went by, however, the people drifted further from Hashem, so the divine presence slowly drifted away from the temple and the land. So now, with that all being the case, that's the second era. The first era was like, okay, guys, you could possibly be invaded if you don't repent. Okay, now that you're seeing that you can be invaded, now you'll be exiled. Temple will be destroyed. So now comes Yermiyahu, third era. As we will see below, the spiritual age or the spiritual decline had reached its point of no return. So we're past the 49th level now. It says there was a divine decree that, that there would be destruction and exile. It was irrevocable. So this is where Yermiyahu comes in. You guys are like 49th, if not lower, as far as the levels of impurity, like like where we would have been in Egypt had we remained there. That's where you guys are. So now, destruction and exile is imminent. It's, uh, it's irrevocable. So think about being the prophet. You're like, couldn't I have gone when Hosea was prophesying? Or couldn't I have gone before that, you know, during the time of the judges or something? Like, that would have been great. But now I got to come here now. So one would think, so how can this evil decree, which is irrevocable, be overturned? Well, remember, Teshuva is something that's outside of time and space. So at the point of this decree being irrevocable, Teshuva can help you time travel and get back before that and actually do some repair. Should the destruction has not been carried out yet. So next page says this. Yermiyahu's misfortune referred not only to his actual, to the actual destruction, but to its inevitability. Until his time, all the prophets called for Teshuva with the assurance that it would prevent exile. During Jeremiah's tenure, the cha that changed. So chapter 25 of Yermiyahu, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, he was commanded to deliver a new prophecy, one that surely broke his heart. He was to tell the people that their last chance to annul the decree. This was their last chance. So destruction is imminent. Temple's going to be destroyed. There's going to be exile. But, you know, I'm going to give you one more chance. Again, this is the power of Teshuvah. This is the power of overturning evil decrees. This is the power of Amen Yehei Shemei Rabah Mevarak Le'olam Olamaya. 
It says, if they did not repent, then the decree would be sealed and Nebuchadnezzar's final conquest would be inevitable. So let's jump down to chapter 25. What does it say? Ha devar asher haya al yemiyahu. The word, the word, asher haya al, that came up on Jeremiah. That's Selah. Okay, anyway, because the word Hadavar, the word that became flesh, i.e. the ability of salvation, repentance, all of that. This is what came at the very last moment. So it's like, okay, here's your last chance. Are you going to take it? No, nope. you're going to reject it? Okay, so crucify him, crucify him? Okay. Fine, enjoy. Enjoy being exiled to Rome, the very exile that you want to worship. So this is a replay you know, of Yermiyahu 25, when we look at the gospel accounts, we had one last chance to get rid of Rome, but we were like, no, we love Rome. Caesar is our, Caesar is our king, not Hashem. And it's like, ooh, okay. So the body of Mashiach is going to be destroyed. Temple is going to be destroyed again. And the nation of Israel is going to be dispersed. And if anybody even tries to touch the Torah, you will die. Yeah, we brought that on ourselves. So anyway, uh goes on here in the comments to this verse. It says, Hashem prevents the final opportunity for Teshuvah be before the heavenly decree of destruction and exile would be sealed. The Jews had one last time before sealing the decree for once the wine of wrath was drunk. The final chance would be squandered. That's brought down from Rashi. So if you're thinking, take this cup from me, if it be your will, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, as in Mark 14, 36, that is correct. We had a chance for the cup to pass. We didn't take it. And Yeshua was trying to ask Hashem to pass the cup, and Hashem was like, no, can't. It can't pass. It has to happen. This time, not Israel is at stake, but the whole world. Because the, the exile to Rome, the exile to Edom, this is the final and greatest of all the exiles. And when this exile is over, it's the final redemption for all of creation. So there's no way it could pass. But exile to Babylon, eh, we don't have to go through that exile. But the exile to Rome, oh, we have to go through that exile. Because I need, I need to make sure all of creation has the chance to return to me. So there's that. So from the keynotes, uh, the the trail of tears from tragedy to triumph, the uh, the short uh, prayer seder we have for Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of Av, where we celebrate or not celebrate, we mourn the destruction of the temple and time to come uh, with Mashiach's arrival. It'll actually be a celebration because the temple will be rebuilt. But anyway. Says on Tisha B'Av, we recite over 40 keynotes, like weepings, cryings, you know, and these are expressions of our pain and misery over the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people. Case in point, should we have done keynote expressing our pain and our misery over our sins and over our distance from Hashem, we would have never had the destruction of the temple. We would have never been exiled. So anyway, 
Scores of major Jewish themes are interwoven into the rich and complex tapestry of the keynote. Yet, one fundamental concept is missing. There is no mention of Mashiach. This deletion is particularly puzzling since, according to many rabbinic sources, Mashiach's birthday is on this very day of Tisha B'Av. Which shouldn't be any uh, confusion for us because how many times is there New Year's, which are technically birthdays? You know, we got Tishrei, we got Nisan, we got Shavat. You know, and then we're going to have first fruits coming up here for Shavuot, which is happening in the month of Savan. And there's there's up to four new years on the on the Hebrew calendar, if you really look it up. And so now Mashiach, it's like, well, he was born. We don't actually have record of it, but we say he was born during Sukkot because that obviously makes a lot of sense. The word of God came and tabernacled among us. I mean, super pun intended on that. But even if you don't want to go with that, Mashiach was born at some point during the fall festivals, like the high holy days, within the first 22 days of the month of Tishrei. We know he wasn't born in the winter month uh, because that's Hanukkah. But there's been um, suggestions that, you know, that's when he was conceived, which is, you know, totally cool. Uh, and then we got the fact that, you know, he was, quote unquote, born again during Nisan with the resurrection becoming Mashiach ben David. Because we know he was born as Mashiach ben Yosef, but raised as Mashiach ben David. He did the suffering part and now he's going to begin the ruling reigning king part. And that's the difference between Tishrei and Nish Nisan. It's going to say Nishrei. <laughs> but anyway. So now we're looking at Tisha B'Av. And it's like, well, this is Mashiach's birthday. It's like, this is the, the day the temple was destroyed, and this is the day that the temple will be rebuilt. And it's like, okay. So just to add that into the mix. So in the keynote, there is no mention of Mashiach. And Tisha B'Av is said to be the very birthday of Mashiach, so why are we not talking about him? Perhaps, going on in the commentary, it says, perhaps the solution to this enigma may be found in the Redeemer's identity. So the identity of the Redeemer, here we go again, who do you say the Son of Man is? says, he is Mashiach ben David, the son of David, an extension and an amplification of the life and accomplishment of King David, the sweet singer of Israel. See the overview to Archgirl Tehillim. The psalmist was uniquely able to sing God's praises under even the most adverse circumstances. Indeed, the more David suffered, the more he praised God. The more intense pain, the more intense passion. Because David extracted the precious nuggets of goodness from within every grief. For David and for the Mashiach, his Sion, there are no bleak, mournful, keynote lamentations. There are only exultant Mizmorim, which is songs. Indeed, this is precisely how Mashiach will redeem Israel from her prevail, travails. By teaching the Jews how to discern the positive, productive forces that are encased 
and every negative experience. In all of the scriptures, no one was afflicted as David. No one was so misunderstood. No one had so many enemies. Job's suffering was unbearable, but it lasted for a relatively short while. But David's entire life was an endless succession of misfortune. This is the wondrous secret of Talim. David cries out in pain, yet songs of joy pour forth from his lips. His words are those of melancholy and despair. Yet a spirit of happiness saturates every syllable. David could cry out every night, My bed I drench with my tears, I soak my couch. And still could exult. Hashem has heard my plea. Hashem will accept my prayer. Tehillim 6, verse 7 and verse 10. There was no contradiction because David understood that his affliction and his acceptance were one. That's from the Zitkat Hazarik 129 from the keynote. So the keynote are the very expression of our sufferings and our pains, but Mashiach is the very expression of suffering and pain that is actually spoken forth in joy. So connecting that to Rabbeinu Bakia and Vayikra 26.41, it says, this verse served the sages in Makilta Bachodesh 10 as proof that the affliction suffered achieve atonement for the victim just as sacrifices offered achieve atonement. The word for Yirzu, which is all about uh, the acceptance, it says here has the same root used in connection with the sacrificial offerings, i.e. the word Nirza, which is the same uh, definition of Yirzu. It says is proof that the purpose and effect of, of such offerings is the same. Physical, yeah, the the effect of such offerings is the same as the the root meaning of Yirtzu about suffering, bringing atonement for our iniquity. It says here the Torah speaks about affliction suffered by the body. In Vayikra 1.4, the physical afflictions equivalent is the financial expense involved in buying the animal which was killed. And if you're thinking Nirza sounds familiar, that is the final step of the Seder. We're asking Hashem to accept everything. And next year, may we be in Jerusalem. So our suffering and our sacrifices are actually working hand in hand to bring atonement for our sins. Which we're talking about here that in the keynote, there's no mention of Mashiach, but yet we're talking about our suffering and we're talking and asking Hashem to atone for us. And it's like, well, that's how you bring Mashiach. Uh, should we merit it? And so, Yermiyahu 25.1 is connecting us back to Mark 14.36, where Yeshua where it says, and he was crying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And again, this is what we're talking about. Like, you have one last chance, Israel. Please listen to the 
the warning of Hashem. And it's like, no, we don't want to take that chance. We don't want to uh, make Teshuvah. So here's how the rest of chapter 25 falls out. Side note, in verse 4, it says, Yermiyahu was setting the stage for his dire warning. Hashem has sent many prophets with many exhortations that Israel must repent. But the people ignored them all. Thinking about the parables Yeshua talked about, you know, sending the, the servants, then sending the son. And then the workers of the vineyard were like, yeah, we'll kill the son and take the inheritance. Anyway, so, yeah, the prophets kept coming and kept coming. And then Yermiyahu came and then they didn't listen to him. Yeshua came. We didn't listen to him. And here we are. Verse 5 says, repent now. Shuvuna, repent, please, repent now. I'm asking you. We say Hoshiana, Hashem save now, but Hashem has been saying Shuvuna, repent now. In other words, you want this salvation, you need to be making your Shuva so that this salvation and the Shuva will make the complete cycle that we need. It goes on to say that repent from your evil ways of murder, licentiousness, Cheating and robbery. That's from the Abarbanel. If you repent from these sins, God will once again make you successful upon the land which he gave to your forefathers. That's from the Malbim. This is actually in Tractate Arakin 15a, <clears throat> where it says, The Mishnah teaches. Um, go back over here. The Mishnah teaches as we found that the sentence imposed on our ancestors in the wilderness was sealed only due to the malicious speech. So up until we spoke it, we weren't technically going to stay 40 years in the wilderness. But when we spoke it, that sealed it. And it says, the malicious speech disseminated by the spies, the Gemara asks, from where is it known that their punishment was due to malicious speech of the spies? The reason I'm bringing this up is because the Lashon Hara is equivalent to licentiousness, murder, cheating, and robbery. Well, it says, perhaps until their se'ah, like, like the filling up of a mikvah, the measure of their sins, warranting punishment, was not yet filled. So, the way we fill up a mikvah with... Mayim Kaim, and we immerse in that to bring us purification. So can it be on the opposite end of the spectrum with our judgment that we can fill that up and bring about ultimate destruction. So we're hanging in the balance here. If you kind of look at our current reality in life, the, the decrees and the judgments, and we're wanting Hashem to sweeten the judgment, bring Mashiach, may the suffering end. And while we're suffering, we're actually bringing atonement while we're quarantined ourselves and we're stuck in our homes and we're going through all these trials, businesses shut down, financial losses and uh, all sorts of other mourning that we're doing and all the sickness literally itself, all of that is working atonement, uh, mitigating the judgment. But yet if we're not repenting, then we're actually increasing the judgment. So the repentance is the way you build your mikvah so that you can take away the the balance and the decree of judgment so literally overturning the decree happens by are you going to build a mikvah 
are you going to build destruction? Which again, we get back to Tadria Metzora, our current Torah portion. So if you go to the mikvah here, uh, from the wisdom of the numbers for the number 40, this is what it says about a mikvah. Because the mikvah is measured in se'ah, which is a volumetric measurement. Uh, and it says that you have to have 40 se'ah for a kosher mikvah. That's how much water you need in there. And because of one of our uh, avengers who does so beautiful with math and science and calculations, that's over a half ton as far as the weight of a mikvah. How much water is in there, that's how much it is. That's the same weight as the tablets, and that's the same weight as the staff of Moshe. Anyway, it says the formula to emerging as a new form lies within the purification process. This also relates to the number 40 and the prominent symbolism of the word mikvah, which literally means gathering of ritual water. Mikvah, if you do the atbash gematria of it, it is 184, which is the same as the word pakod, which is what was used to cause Sarah to conceive to bear Yitzhak, which connects us back to Teshuva. So the mikvah is the manifestation of Teshuva. So it says that Hashem remembered her, he visited her, and then she became pregnant. And then that following year, she gave birth. So anyway, that's the word Pakod. And then the whole thing about redemption, Pakod, Pakoti, Hashem will surely remember you. That's the words the Redeemer will give us. Joseph told that to the children of Israel. Moshe said that when he showed up. And what happened? The children of Israel were redeemed. So literally, the more we mikvah, the more we make teshuva, the more salvation, the more we bring about redemption. That's the point of that. The immersion of all or the immersion of an object or a subject in the natural waters of the mikvah eradicates all traces of an earlier existence. So remember the thing I told you about teshuva was brought forth before creation. So therefore, when you enter into teshuva, you enter outside of creation. Well, guess what? When you're immersed in a mikvah, everything about who you were prior to the fact that you went into the mikvah, gone. It's out of there. So, that's ridiculous. Don't really know what to say about that. But anyway, talk about being a new creation. And the old has passed away. A valid mikvah has a minimum of 40 se'ah in rapport with the theme of repentance, these waters wash away all impurity, tearing up your evil decrees, mitigating the judgment, tipping the scale back the other way, if you will. It says the rainfall of 40 days and 40 nights during the great flood functioned like a volume of mikvah to similarly purify the earth from its sinful form. Now, Hashem is not going to flood the world again. But let's not get crazy because there is a flood of fire that comes and that is the Torah and it's punishment for those who reject it and it's cleansing and renewal for those who receive it. Hence why the fire in the Ruach HaKodesh that the Messiah immerses us in is literally that new mikvah that's supposed to purify the earth. So we purify first with water, that's Yochanan, that's Teshuvah. 
and then we bring in the fire and that's Yeshua and that's salvation that's redemption that's the final uh, goal the heavens and the earth according to Kepha's letter they're going to be rebuilt with fire the new temple is going to be surrounded by fire so in order for you to go to the third temple you're going to have to be able to walk in fire Shaul says to the Corinthians that the day of the Lord will be a great testing and all of our works are going to be passed through the fire. So, yeah. The mikvah waters induce a pristine identity. They induce a pristine identity. And it says that emerges as a new unsullied form of life. The final state of a woman's purification and the closing state of conversion, the closing stage of conversion to Judaism are likened to a newborn emerging from the mother's womb. The footnote on that, I just wrote out to the side. It says, so at the end of Nidah, uh, we're made like an Alma. So the woman becomes like a very new form, a very new creature. So therefore, when she's purified through the waters of a mikvah, the same thing with a person who converts to Judaism were also made like an Alma made like this newborn hadn't known a man for lack of a better term type thing same thing that happened to Sarah the same thing that was true of Miriam the whole Alma drop so anyway the mikvah can cause that and that's all a part of Teshuvah it says the mikvah acts as a preparatory phase of holiness, serves as a stepping stone into the Jews' enthusiastic readiness to perform a mitzvah. Hence why, as we're reading in Yermiyahu 25, that if we took this last chance, we could have renewed everything. We didn't even have to go into exile, but we were like, no, we don't want to do a mikvah. We don't want no teshuva. We don't want no Yeshua. It's okay. We like where we are. We'll be people of evil speech. We'll be people of murder and licentiousness and idolatry. It's totally fine with us. We love exile. Caesar's our king. Amalek is the gospel. It's great. It's like, uh, no. Whoever feels like that, put the crack pipe down and get in the mikvah. Okay. The mikvah acts as a preparatory phase of holiness. It serves as a stepping stone to the Jews' enthusiastic readiness to perform a mitzvah similarly. It also, or it is also about wanting to embrace a higher, more exalted stage. Here, to the person sheds his earlier states in order to take to take on a new form. Footnotes of Mishnah Mikvot one seven says the cubic volume forty say ah in mikvah measures one cubit long by one cubit wide and three cubits deep. Cross-reference with Eruvine 14b. The Sefer HaChinuk, Mitzvah 175. And Shem Mishmuel Shabbat Shuvah 5764 says, There is the universal custom of immersing in a mikvah before Yom Kippur. Why? Because at Yom Kippur, we're going to be considered born again. And then we're going to go into Sukkot with Hashem. 
Just like a bride and groom who immerse before their wedding day, so we do the same thing. And then we have Yom Kippur, which is our wedding day, and then we go celebrate, which is Sukkot. Going on to say that the com the convert ascends from the mikvah spiritually reborn as a full-fledged Jew. Because why? A Jew is a new creation. The only way to become a Jew is to be somebody who is completely different from who they were before. Example, Abraham and Sarah. They weren't born of Jewish mothers, but they were reborn from Jewish mothers. Namely, the mikvah says that his halakhic classification is indistinguishable from that of a newborn child. Yevamot 22a Bekorot uh, 47a. The symbolism is particularly potent as the fetus is similarly surrounded by water until its birth. So... Yochanan chapter 3, Naktimon and Yeshua are talking, and Naktimon is like, how can I re-enter into my mother's womb? And Yeshua's like, come on, man, you know what I'm talking about. Go get in the mikvah, man. Go get in the waters of Torah and, and rise up and come to a new level. Because that's where the Son of Man is going to be raised up, that all men be drawn unto him. Because, you know, the divine sparks were shattered, and they went out and got spread across the earth. But we're going to draw them back in through the uplifted body of Mashiach that's raised up from the what? Mikvah. Because when he was buried and resurrected after his death, that's what a mikvah is like. So when we're talking about being crucified with Messiah, no longer we live, but he lives in us. We died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. That is a mikvah. So... It says, it was taught in the Bereta that Rabbi Eliezer ben Parata says, come and see how the great power of malicious speech, or how great the power of malicious speech is, Lashon Hara. From where do we derive this? From the punishment received by the spies. And if one who defames the wood and rocks, and I said, okay, what's the Hebrew of that? Etzim is wood. Rocks is Evanim, so wood and stone. I immediately thought about the temple, but then I was like, wait a minute. Yeshua's the wood and the stone because his body is the tree of life, but he was placed on the tree. And then he is the two rocks, the Evanim, the stones. Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. Those are the two Mashiachs who are stones, foundation stones. They're the rock that was rejected. And so the wood and stone were put together, as it says in Yochanan 2.19, destroy this temple, Yeshua answered them, and in three days I will raise it up. So Yeshua being the stones, the Evan stones, the two Mashiachs, on a tree, which is the stake, and he was slandered, which is Zaharot, he summons his sickness upon himself, all of that. And it says, of Eretz Israel and received such a severe punishment that... Or then, with regard to one who defames another person, all the more so will he be punished severely. So, if one who defames the wood and stone of Israel, if they received a severe punishment, then with regard to the one who defames another person, all the more so will he be severely punished. Because when the spies slandered the land and said, we can't go up to the land, there's giants, Hashem can't defeat the giants and all that, 
we were actually destroying the temple with those very words because we were talking about the wood and the stones that are in Israel and we were slandering it. And Hashem was like, fine, well, you ain't going into it. And it's only because of what you said. Had you been a little fearful and didn't really talk about it and didn't really slander it, we could have worked with that. Just like what Yermiyahu's saying, should you guys make the shuva and quit doing all this horrible stuff, we could work with that. Because here in the footnote of uh, the passage in 25, it says that if you repent from these sins, God will once again make you successful upon the land he gave you. Even if you were to repent only from your idolatry, but persist in your other sins, Hashem would be patient and not bring evil upon you. Although he would not make you successful. That's from the Malbim, and that's Yermiyahu 25 verse 6. So again, overturning the evil decrees is connected to repentance. And namely from your Lashon Hurrah, your idolatry, and all that. So I want to finish up here with some Shonef Pincus uh, on Parsha Taruma 50, uh, from this year, 5780, pages 5 and 6. It's bringing down the Kedushat Levi because he's talking about the third temple because I told you it was, it was going to be out of fire, right? So it says the third Beta Mikdash, the temple, represents both the Torah, Torah Sheba Katav, which is the written Torah, and the Torah Sheba al Pei, which is the uh, oral Torah, which the word of God is fire. So two Torahs, two fires, here you go. That's the temple. The third temple is, is built out of the written and the oral Torah. And it says the Zohar HaKadosh Pinkus 221a says the following Pasuk is written about the third temple based off of Tehillim 147.2. The builder of Yerushalayim is Hashem. So Hashem is the one who builds the temple. Yet Mashiach Yeshua says, I go away to prepare a place for you. But who is the son? He is the image of the father. So yeah, there's that. It says, this indicates that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is destined to build, as it were, the third Beit HaMikdash, incorporating both the previous two temples. The second Beit HaMikdash will stand on the ground in full view while the first Bet HaMikdash will stand up on it, concealed like clouds of glory surrounding and illuminating it. So there's that. And connect that with the Messiah text from chapter 12. So I'm going to drop down Pasikta Rabati 162a, which says what? It says, For ever since the day on which the wicked Nebuchadnezzar came up and destroyed my temple and burnt my sanctuary, I exiled my children among the nations of the world. By your life, whose life? The life of the Mashiach, that is. And by the life of your head, I have not sat up on my throne. And if you do not believe, see the dew that is upon my head. In that hour, he says before him, the Messiah says before Shem, Master of the world, now my mind is at rest, for it is sufficient for the servant to be like his master. Fasikta Rabati 162a. So the destruction of the temple of Hashem by Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of the Mashiach, his temple. Again, Yochanan chapter 2. Again, those two things are related. Hashem, you destroyed your temple and you suffered. I'm okay with destroying my temple and suffering. And ultimately, both of these things bring atonement. 
because other Midrashim bring down that because Hashem took out his wrath on wood and stones, i.e. the temple, that the Jewish people are preserved. Because those very wooden stones absorbed and called up on themselves our sickness. Uh, some more stuff here from Pasikti Rabati 36 says, You suffered because of the sins of our children. The cruel punishments have come upon you like which have not come upon the early and later generations because of Israel. Your sin cleft to your bones and your body dried out like wood. Your eyes grew dim from fasting. Strength became like a potsherd. All this because of the sins of our children, i.e. the Jews. Great sufferings have come upon you on their account, i.e. the Jewish nation. Many people say the Messiah is not supposed to die for our sins, but here we are. Continuously hearing that. Zohar, volume 2, 212a says, This is what is written. He was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5. So yes, Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. The souls then return to their places. In the Garden of Eden, there is a hall, which is called the Hall of the Sons of Illness. The Messiah enters that hall and summons all the diseases and all the pains and all the sufferings of Israel that they should, that should have come upon them. Okay, so he takes all of our sufferings that should have come upon us. It says, so... The sufferings of Israel that they should have come upon him, and all of them come upon him. Okay, so he says, everything that belongs to Israel, bring it on. Bring it to me. Come to me, all of you who are heavily laden and burdened. Take my yoke upon you. And it says, and he would not, and would he not thus bring ease to Israel and take their sufferings upon himself. No man could endure their sufferings. Israel has to undergo. So Messiah is clearly not a man. It says, because they neglected the Torah, as long as Israel dwelt in the Holy Land, the rituals and sacrifices they performed in the temple removed all those diseases from the world. Hence why, if we go ahead and build a third temple, by our words, by calling out to Hashem to send Mashiach now, the whole world can be healed from all diseases. It says, now the Messiah removes them from the children of the world. So not only do the sins of Israel get removed from them through the Messiah, but now the sins of the world get removed by the Messiah. Zohar 2, 212a. And just to bring this down, back in the preface, it says, What if Zedekiah had surrendered? Zedekiah was after Josiah. It says, In Yermiyahu's prophecy, there was an alternative to total destruction. In earlier years, the national repentance could have reversed the decree set in motion by Menashe's abominable excesses. And Yisrael could have, again, been a secure, successful nation and a resting place for the Shekinah. Even when the divine decree became final and irreversible, Jeremiah extended hope. Still hope. Then some Rebbeinu Bakya writes that the latter verse relates to the former. Bring us back to you, Adonai, and we will return to you. But if you do not bring us back, 
it will seem as if you have utterly rejected us, but this is not true. You have raged against us, and justifiably so. True, you were enraged with us, but rage can be reversed. Only rejection is final, but God has never rejected his people. Last source, Akidat Yitzhak 67.6. The Talmud Rosh Hashanah 16 discusses the timing of celestial judgments. Rabbi Yossi emphasizes that daily judgment of man occurs. Also, whereas Rabbi Yochanan makes the point that repentance tears up the evil decree. When the question is raised that even myriads of sacrifices, if they're offered after the day of atonement, can no longer change the evil decree. The answer given is that this is so only in the case of individuals. Collective repentance of a congregation is accepted at all times. So all Yisrael has to cry out, we want Mashiach now. So may this message be received and may it be helpful and a blessing to everyone. And let us all say, Amen, Yehei, Shemei, Rabbah, Mevarach, Le'olam, Ulmei, Almaya. Amen. May his great name be blessed forever into all eternity. HaKadosh Baruch bring Mashiach now. Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet, Vekhaye Olam Natabetokeinu, Baruch Atah Adonai, Noten HaTorah.